This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It was a little more than half a century ago at the 1968 Olympics that two victorious black athletes in a year that saw the assassination of Martin Luther King raised black-gloved fists during the medal ceremony as the Star-Spangled Banner was played. From that date to this, there have been only occasional actions by athletes over civil rights, like kneeling during the anthem, but nothing like this past week, where games, including NBA playoffs, were not played at all. CBS News correspondent Steve Futterman has been covering this in Los Angeles. And Steve, this was not just a protest over a black man being shot in the back in Kenosha. For some people like Sterling Brown, the Milwaukee forward who in 2018 was tackled by police officers and shocked with a taser after a parking violation, this was very, very personal. Yes, for many of them, it, it has been personal. And remember, they have already been active, the NBA players, following the uh, killing of George Floyd in in Minneapolis. They had been taking action already uh, uh, on the NBA courts that they've been playing on in, the, in this bubble there in, in Orlando. Uh, all the courts have the, the words Black Lives Matter. So they had already been engaged in a social action process already. And when the, the shooting took place in Kenosha, I think it just amped everything up. And the players who were, some of them, reluctant to return to playing anyway because of uh, what they perceived as basketball, simply not as important as, as dealing with social action. I, I just think it, it got to them and uh, we, we saw the result. And then there was that domino effect. After the NBA came the WNBA, Major League Soccer, some baseball games were canceled. Uh, you had a, uh, a tennis star, Naomi Osaka, uh, briefly withdrew from her tournament in Ohio. Uh, so this is, I, I've never seen anything like this when it comes to social action involving so many different players and so many different leagues. At a meeting of NBA players, Celtic star Jalen Brown brought up an important point. Um, he asked his uh, NBA fellow players, look, if you guys leave here, because some were saying they just wanted to go home, are you just going to leave and go chill and hang out with your families and lose that loneliness? Or are you going to be in the trenches? Are you going to be in the streets? He was trying to make the point that if you're going to go home, you're not doing something, you're evading something, whereas with this platform we have as NBA players, we may get something accomplished. 
Yeah, I, I think that's what may have changed some of the players to deciding to stay and, and play NBA basketball, which they are going to do. When they had that meeting uh, the other night, the initial meeting, uh, the two teams we were told had said, no, we don't want to play, were the two Los Angeles teams, the LA Lakers, you know, led by LeBron James, who has a, a major voice in all this. He is sort of, if there's one person who has a bigger voice than anyone else, because of what he's done in the past, it is LeBron James. And the other L.A. team, the L.A. Clippers, both these teams had said, no, we want to just leave. We don't want to play anymore. Well, there, there are some complications to that. I won't go into it, but there are some labor negotiation points, what it could trigger as far as the players. Much of that would not be to their advantage. But but then, as you mentioned, uh, the, the point was, fine, leave. Are you still going to do stuff? Well, LeBron James, we know, was going to do stuff. He's already said he's uh, trying to uh, round up people who can be monitors at voting locations. So he's very much involved. But were the other players just going to go home? Were they going to be on the front lines? Were they going to spend their days doing things. And I think that may have convinced them that, yes, maybe it's best to play. So they are going to play. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if there are some changes as well, but they are going to play. You talked about the Clippers, Steve, and the most uh, passionate spokesman for the boycotts was probably the L.A. Clippers coach, Doc Rivers. There's been a lot of talk about fear of the reactions to police shootings, especially at the Republican convention this past week. Rivers was rather put off by that. And let's listen to what he said. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. We've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. So Rivers, Steve, was uh, very passionate and very articulate for his side of the argument. Oh, yes. And th- what this is sort of what triggered everything. That that happened after the Clippers played their final game before this uh, brief uh, pause in play. And that went viral. We know the way social media can work. Uh, he said it on, on Wednesday night. And uh, I remember seeing it. I talked to our desk in Washington and I said to them, uh, uh, th- this is big stuff. I, I was seeing already the reaction on Twitter. And I think what he said just reverberated, not just around basketball, not even just around the sports world. It was being shown on ordinary newscast it was on beyond ESPN and I think that sort of triggered everything within 24 hours you had some of the players and the the Milwaukee Bucks saying we're not going to play right now so I think what he said just hit a nerve with the players in the NBA and I think other players as well in other leagues you talked about uh, TV coverage. This even affected TV analyst, former NBA player Kenny Smith, walked off of Wednesday nights inside the NBA on TNT. And let's listen to how that went down. And for me, I think the biggest thing now is to kind of, as a black man, as a former player, I think it's for, best for me to support the players and just not be here tonight. So, Steve, baseball games were canceled, WNBA games, NBA games, National Hockey League, on and on and on. This is an interesting situation, though, a kind of once-in-a-lifetime situation, because for one thing, there were no fans to turn away at ballparks and arenas, no refunds to give. And the other thing is the virus played a part in the players in the NBA and WNBA being in those bubbles, or the wobble as the WNBA calls it, so they could actually meet together in a way they would usually not be able to. Oh, yes. That NBA meeting, I think, must have been fascinating. You have all these teams 
teams in Orlando, the ones which are still in the playoffs, they are in this bubble. They had a meeting. They were all in one place. They got together Wednesday night to, to meet. Uh, they hashed it out. It was very emotional, as we've been told. Uh, media was not allowed in there. And that's where initially the Clippers and the Lakers said, no, we don't want to play. We want to just end the season. Uh, but but there were lots of discussions in there. LeBron James, one of the main voices. We've been told that Michael Jordan, who historically we know has sort of shied away from politics. If you have one criticism of Michael Jordan, that might have been it, that he just did not want to get involved. Uh, he's famously quoted as saying, although I think he disputes the uh, the context of all this, he once said Republicans wear Nikes as well. Uh, he thought it might affect his is advertising his his uh, reach as far as an endorser, but he got involved, and I think he may have played a key role in getting the players to come together and deciding to let's finish the season. Uh, you're going to see situations, I think, where uh, post game news conferences are not going to be talking about basketball, but be they'll be talking about things like uh, Jacob Blake, uh, uh, police uh, uh, misconduct in other cities, uh, past misdeeds by police. So uh, these post game news conferences could turn into more of a session about policing in America rather than basketball on the court. It was interesting. We had canceled games in Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball, generally the most conservative tradition bound of of the major sports. The new manager of the San Francisco Giants, Gabe Kapler, backed the players. And let's hear that. Some things I think are just bigger than sports and Black Lives Matter and that police brutality is unacceptable. Kapler was interesting, Steve. He probably does feel strongly about this, but he's also, and this gives a, an idea of the layers of this, he's looking for footing in a progressive town. His hiring was not popular at all in San Francisco, in part because he didn't do that well with the Phillies, but also because he failed to tell police of a claim of sexual assault by a player when he was in the Dodger organization. So this nexus of politics and sports has many, many layers. Oh, absolutely. And he's also a very interesting figure. He is he's more outspoken, I think, than most managers. But you're seeing the new types of managers willing to talk about these things. The old managers, maybe not. Uh, don't think you would have someone like uh, Tommy Lasorda uh, playing a role in all this. The new managers are younger. They've they've grown up in a different atmosphere and they seem to be more willing. One thing, Gil, that was very moving to me was Thursday night. Uh, the New York Mets did play on the Wednesday night, uh, but on Thursday night, they took the field. The Miami Marlins were at the stadium in New York City. The Mets were on the field. They all paused for 42 seconds of silence, that number 42, to honor Jackie Robinson, who is number was number 42. That number, of course, retired in Major League Baseball. So after taking the field, the Mets and the Marlins paused. They were all lined up outside their dugouts. After that 42-second pause, the Mets came off the field. They said, we're not going to play. And it was uh, very symbolic and I thought quite moving. When it was over, they had placed a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on home plate. CBS News correspondent Steve Futterman covering all of this from Los Angeles. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
The Republican National Convention was like the Democratic Convention of the week before, entirely unlike anything we have ever seen. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent and host of the podcast The Takeout is with us, Major Garrett. Major, so much to cover here. First, just as the virus changed, the Democratic Convention allowed Joe Biden to present a more personal acceptance speech. The changed circumstance created the possibility of President Trump doing something we've never seen before, using the White House as a backdrop and accentuating his power. Accentuating his power? using the backdrop, the majesty, the people's house, which he called it as a place to not just talk to the country as president of the United States, which he can from time to time. Every president has. That's not different. What's different is to use that building as a place for his bid for a second term. Before we get back to the president, the tone of this GOP convention was basically, if you vote for Biden, law and order will collapse. The world will become chaos. The suburbs will be on fire. It's interesting because one of the problems progressive Democrats had with Joe Biden was that they felt that he's kind of like too milquetoast. Nobody will believe he'll change anything. The Republicans almost sold a completely different story about Biden. Yes, and in the run-up to the uh, convention, and even in some of the rhetoric, if you look at it very closely, Republicans say, you know, for 47 years, Joe Biden never did anything. And now suddenly he's going to be this dynamo of destruction who's going to ruin American life as we know it. And that is a bit of a conflict if you, like I said, drill down. But in Maine, you're right, Gil, what the Republicans tried to do was paint this very near apocalyptic vision of what America would be if one person is elected president over Donald Trump. Everything fundamentally will change. Nothing will be recognizable in America. Voters are going to have to decide, and I think they're going to spend a good deal of time ruminating about this. Does Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, does that ticket represent the ruination of America? That's what Republicans said, not just once, but repeatedly. And they tried to do one thing rhetorically, Gil, that I think is worth observing. Republicans didn't just say violence is wrong. They said even the protests when peaceful represent an ideology that is destructive, destructive of America and revolutionary in a dangerous socialistic way. So they were trying to fuse these things together. Whatever you see on the streets, even if it's a peaceful protest, what underlies that agenda is something you cannot abide. That's what they were trying to pitch throughout four days of the convention in very aggressive and and uh, visual language. And the country is going to sit back and say, hmm, is that what this represents or does it represent something different? One thing that happened during the convention that's going to add some interesting texture to that conversation, to that thought process, very prominent athletes in big, heavily watched sports said, you know what? We're going to take our own time out because this moment requires us to do something where we're not just in the amusement business, we're in the political business. There was a lot of concentration about the suburbs of the GOP convention. Half of all African-Americans in America, however, live in the suburbs, some because of upward mobility, many others because of gentrification and the return of white professionals to the city. Are the suburbs still politically what politicians on either side think they are? They are different and they are changing. And to your point about what the messaging was, it was not just the words, but it was the people who spoke those words. And the Republicans placed more African-Americans in their convention lineup than ever before in that party's history for two reasons. One, to try to pull African-American votes alongside the Trump re-election banner. One of the senior advisors to the president, Jason Miller, told me for my podcast, The Debrief, that he expects the president to receive more than 10% of the African-American vote in this election. And he predicted 
that after this election is over, and he believes President Trump will be reelected, analysts will be dumbfounded by the percentage of African-American and, he said, Latino voters in suburbs and in urban areas that go for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. That's the goal. But there was another effort as well. The rep- representation of African-Americans on behalf of the Trump campaign was to send a signal to independents and those lightly attached suburban Republicans, hey, Donald Trump isn't the racist you hear him described as. People of color do support him. It's okay. You have permission. You have license to feel a strong support and attachment to Donald Trump, even though that might not be comfortable in your neighborhood. It might not be comfortable among your friends. You can do it because this is a reassuring signal to you that he's not as bad as described or as bad as you sometimes tell yourself he is. Despite all that, And that hope from the Republican Party, I think what's clear from both conventions, though, is that this may be an election less about changing anyone's mind than it may be about turnout of the hardcore party base. Mobilization is going to be crucial for both parties. And Democrats keep telling themselves over and over, a lot of us took a nap on the 2016 election for lots of various reasons. Maybe not excited about Hillary Clinton, maybe thinking it was in the bag, maybe thinking that Trump wouldn't be so bad. Democrats are telling themselves that cannot be the approach psychologically or in practice. And so you're going to see turnout and mobilization efforts. And one big part of the president's very long speech to accept the Republican Party nomination was to re-energize the base of his party. One thing, Gil, that's been interesting in my conversations with Republicans all week, and really this hasn't been discussed very much, fundraising for the re-election campaign of President Trump has begun to waver and it's become a concern. And they want to get that base revved up. So the speech was long really long to give lots of viral moments that can be passed around among Trump supporters to get them to open up their wallets because the Trump campaign knows it's trailing, knows it needs to catch up. And one of the ways you do that is to advertise, but you have to have the money to do that. That's another subtext of what we saw this week and especially the night the president accepted the nomination. Let's talk about the crowd, Major. Much of the president's message was, despite the 180,000 dead in America, that the virus is beaten. And the crowd at the White House was almost entirely without masks. And I guess the question is whether that made the president look victorious or oblivious, because with many Americans still believing he will be best for the economy overall, the virus may be his biggest political problem right now. The virus is his biggest political problem. And when I asked Jason Miller, again, senior advisor to the Trump campaign, if he believed The president was a net favorite against Joe Biden, but a net underdog up against the virus. He said, wow, that's a really good question. I don't think you can separate the two, but definitely the virus is a big part of the national conversation. And whether he's oblivious or victorious, voters are going to render that judgment, Gil. And I'll tell you this. I talked to the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, last week, again, for my podcast, The Debrief. And he said the most important thing Americans can do right now to reopen the economy, to go back to school safely, and to get back to something approximating normal American life is to do three things. And he emphasized them very passionately. Wear a mask, socially distance, and adhere to hygienic guidelines. Nothing that we saw on the two nights, either for Vice President Pence or for the president, suggested that Trump supporters actually do that. Now, the cabinet secretary, Alex Azar, did wear a mask, one of the very few cabinet secretaries to listen to the president's speech who did. But the rest did not. That's not a mixed message. That is a message of indifference and a suggestion that whatever the president's orientation to the pandemic and whatever the pandemic's orientation to the country is, they are not adhering to their own structured advice. And that tells you something about not just their ideology, but it tells you something about how they practice politics in a time of a pandemic. Campaigning. I think 
Donald Trump has made it clear he's going to be out there holding rallies. The fact that all those people were comfortable not wearing masks, being close together, may be a sign that he's very comfortable holding rallies. Now, Biden has announced he's going to start going to swing states, but he is going to be cognizant of state restrictions on physical distancing and all of that. How much might that hurt Biden in the couple of months ahead? So the president's going to try to send a very visible and also subliminal message. I'm vigorous. I'm with it. I'm engaged. I'm strong. And if Joe Biden is not matching that in terms of campaigning, either making himself available for reporters' questions or dealing with, if he can, crowds in certain places, he will, by contrast, look less vigorous, maybe less strong. The Trump campaign is counting on that. And the events the president will have will almost exclusively be in airport hangars where you can space out a little bit, where you can bring the plane up, get the president out, and everyone has a place to park. It's not a rally. It's not an arena situation. But these smaller airport things, the president has finally decided they work for him. He gets just enough energy from them, and he's going to do a lot of them. That is a template for the Biden campaign to follow if it wants to. But I know the internal conversations within the Biden campaign are, how do we respond to this environment? How do we remain consistent with our safety first, data first, science first orientation to the pandemic, but also show some vigorous campaigning out there? I think if anybody thought Ivanka Trump might feel too burned by politics, the message was loud and clear. She does not. And she spoke repeatedly of, we did this, we did that, referring to the president and herself. It sounded in some ways like a 2024 campaign speech. In all ways, like a 2024 campaign speech. As I was watching that, Gil, I had the unmistakable impression that Ivanka was laying the groundwork for a run somewhere about something and and placing herself not only at the center of this movement, but at the center of the psychology of the big mover of the movement, the father, her father, the president of the United States. And one of the things that is a part of this convention that all Republicans are very quietly talking about is, well, we don't know if President Trump's going to win or not. And so Mike Pompeo, Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, Christy Nome, and others in their speeches were also rehearsing, getting themselves ready for a 2024 bid, because if President Trump doesn't win, the fight to succeed him will begin instantly. And it is worth noting in that whole context, no one was given a better platform for that purpose than the vice president, Mike Pence, who also has very much in his own mind succession plans, whether it's 2024 or immediately after a Trump defeat. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. And for more, follow his podcast, The Takeout. Major, thank you. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and that is the sound of Hurricane Laura making landfall on the Gulf Coast early Thursday morning. Hurricane Laura has brought back to the news an age-old debate that, like the air, is heating up. Since 1980, according to NOAA, the United States has had 273 weather and climate disasters that have cost over $1 billion each. The total of those in cost to property and crops has been just short of $2 trillion. And Laura may put that total well over the top. Of course, that doesn't even mention the lives lost. In hurricanes, the wind, of course, kills only a few people. It is the flooding that often happens days afterwards that causes the most death. In some places, these events are once in a lifetime, but in others, they happen repeatedly. And because towns are where they are, or property people live on is where it is, 
we just rebuild and go through this all over again. Now there is a seemingly radical move to move on from that. Stephen Eisenman is with Anthropocene Alliance, a Florida-based nonprofit of which Stephen is co-founder, which has an initiative, Higher Ground, the largest flood survivor network in the country. Stephen, good to have you with us. How are you doing? Good. Thanks very much for having me. We've long paid some people just to get out, but now we're talking about the kind of thing that has usually been associated just with maybe a planned dam was to flood an entire town. And we just, you know, move it elsewhere or pay everybody to move elsewhere. Now we're talking about doing this on a massive scale. Well, really, it's about time we did it. Um, you know, we've been building in flood prone areas for a long while, and it makes no sense. Uh, basically, the, the, re the law should be don't build where it floods, but we keep doing it. So I certainly think that moving people out of harm's way and restoring and rebuilding communities in safer areas is the way to go. It's the way to go, but it, it's difficult depending on the area in some places where there's a lot of vacant land and a lot of land that is inexpensive, this can be done. A few places in Louisiana have been moved or in the process of being moved that way. But yeah. as you get along the, say, Atlantic coast, where land is often valuable, it was beachfront property and all of that, this is going to be A, an expensive proposition, and B, just being able to buy up the land somewhere to rebuild is going to be something that's going to be difficult to find and do. Well, you're right. It's going to be an expensive proposition, but we know from uh, projections uh, about climate change that uh, more and more areas are going to be inundated, particularly coastal areas, and they will be, include even uh, large cities. So we need to start making preparations now, even if we get a hold of or get under control global warming, which is absolutely essential to all this. Even if we do that, we'll be having a generation of uh, increased flooding. So we need to start doing it. We need to start having programs uh, moving for small communities and then, if necessary, larger ones, and even, indeed, uh, eventually whole cities. What's interesting is one change in the buy-in may be from the real estate community. Realtor.com has now become the first site to disclose information about a home's flood risk and how climate change could increase the risk to that property in coming decades. That gives consumers access to information that they've never really had before. The other realty sites have said, yeah, we agree. That's really good for buyers to know, but sellers don't want this. They're going to hate it because it's going to decrease their home's value. And for many Americans, since most American savings for things like retirement are minimal at best, what they have invested in their home is the major investment in their lives. And so there's this deal right now where buyers are hungry for this information and sellers are hungry to keep it away from buyers. And I wonder how we're going to deal with that. Well, that's a, that's a very important point. And I, I actually applaud the Realtor.com move. And surprisingly, many of the people, most of the people in our uh, flood-afflicted uh, communities support these disclosure laws, even though they themselves may be harmed by it. But all, there may be ways to mitigate the damage to homeowners. So, for example, when a home is listed, um, it could be that uh, they could be uh, have access to grants or low-interest loans uh, on a need on a need basis uh, based upon their income that could help the, help a buyer uh, improve the home and therefore make it livable for themselves, thereby uh, encouraging the seller to disclose their flood risks in the past and also to allow them to, to move it. As you say, it is, for most people, the largest uh, investment in their lives. And it isn't fair that they should get stuck holding the bag 
when they bought their properties, they probably bought them without knowing the flood risk. And then possibly the owner before them and the before them didn't know either. Um, so they're each passing on this flood risk to the next buyer. And it has to stop somewhere, but it shouldn't be that the last person who has the property has to f- bear the full responsibility of, uh, of the financial loss. Well, unfortunately, Hurricane Laura is going to take this argument from something very interesting to talk about to something that is a matter of, in some cases, life and death, and, and certainly a matter of, of safety to many, many Americans. Stephen Eisenman is with Anthropocene Alliance, a Florida-based nonprofit, and it has an initiative, Higher Ground, the largest flood survivor network in the country. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Groves. Airline travel has, of course, collapsed during the battle against COVID-19. People aren't going anywhere. They don't want to be in a confined space with other people, and many overseas travel destinations don't want Americans at all because we are, unfortunately, having the highest rate of virus and death in the world. Some of this will disappear or at least lessen once we have vaccines, but some parts of the travel industry may be changed forever. And let's talk about that with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg. Peter, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm hanging in. I'm just beginning to go back and travel, so I'm excited. I'm glad you're excited. So you've been on a couple of flights now. What were they like? About three weeks ago, I took a flight from New York to Tampa to broadcast my radio show. Um, The plane was only a third full. Everybody had their own row. Obviously, we were practicing the right protocols. Everybody was wearing a mask. I was only down there for 40 hours and came back. And then just four days ago, flew the Transcon for the first time in six months from New York to L.A., where I keep one of my offices to see my team for the first time in six months. So it's been, uh, it's a brave new world. But uh, the point is, if you if you properly, you know, and responsibly dress and protect yourself, uh, all things are possible. Well, let's start with the huge furloughs as we talk about the larger picture. American laying off a total of 19,000 workers. Other airlines are cutting back. Some of this may be changed if there's a stimulus deal, but long range here, how does this look? Well, long range is not good at all. These airlines are going to become very much smaller. Uh, Keep in mind that the last stimulus bill, the CARES Act, the provisions of which expire September 30th, allowed airlines to keep all their people employed, but essentially fly empty airplanes, financially unsustainable. And those provisions run out on September 30th. And that's when the airlines have already announced, as American did, furloughing 19,000 people. Delta is going to follow suit. United Airlines already put 36,000 of their own workers on notice that they may be subject to furlough. So you're going to see not only the airlines get smaller, you're going to see them drop a lot of routes, a lot of secondary and tertiary cities in the U.S. Most international flights that are not going to major international gateway cities will not operate. It's going to be going back to the early days of the jet age where airfares have nowhere to go but up, and you may have to drive a long time to get to an airport that is going to get you to where you want to go. And let's talk about that, because I think missing in a lot of the national reports on this are some of the airlines that are really hurting that people don't really know because they fly with United or American pasted on their planes. But they're actually smaller airlines usually doing the regional commuter parts of these routes. So what we have here is ExpressJet just announced it's going out of business, even though it was just in February as this thing was ramping up. But United announced it was doing a long-term deal with the company. Transstates and Compass both folded in April. And again, listeners may not know those names, but those are the ones that may be servicing the airports closest to their homes. Right. Those are the airlines that operate 
They're operated by those companies, but they bear the logo and the signage of the airlines that we know. Um, and yes, they are going. Another thought is that in the last five months, 34 separate airlines have failed. We're not talking about Chapter 11 reorganization where they're still operating. We're talking 34 airlines that will never fly again. That's scary. But what we're talking about is people maybe having to drive hundreds of miles to get to an airport to get anywhere else in the country. That's correct. I mean, the airlift issues here are going to be significant. Uh, in some cases, they won't be. I mean, United Airlines canceled, excuse me, American Airlines canceled New Haven, but they do fly to Hartford. And, and you know, we're talking distances of maybe 70 or 80 miles. That's reasonable. But in the middle, in the middle parts of the country, not so easy. Um, and if you're living in Moline, Illinois, or Dubuque, Iowa, or uh, Roswell, New Mexico, you may end up having to hitch a ride on a UFO because the service there may be disappearing. Let's talk about seating. On the flights that you were in a few months ago, you and I talked about some of the changes that might have made flying safer. Middle seats that face the opposite direction, a number of things. But they're not being done because the airlines are saying, we just don't have the money. Well, I'm one of those people who believes that uh, the middle seat is there for a reason, for the airlines to sell it. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, you can't expand the width of a cabin to make it socially distancing responsible. That's silly. Uh, in the current situation where you have Delta, uh, Alaska, and JetBlue blocking that middle seat, and in some cases making it part of their corporate mission statement to block it through October 15th, if you actually took out a tape measure, the actual distance between you and the, and the window seat and the other guy in the aisle seat with nobody in the middle is only about 25 inches. That's I mean, one inch more than two feet, not six feet. And it doesn't count the 14 inches of separation between you and the guy behind you who just sneezed. So now, having said that, the high, the high efficiency HEPA filters have done a great job. Uh, people don't realize that that air in the plane is recirculated every three minutes. It's brought in from the outside. It's heated by the engines. It comes in at about minus 60 degrees. It's heated by the engines and then brought into the cabin and the old air is purged out. That's a very efficient system as long as everybody else practices the discipline of wearing a mask on the flight. So even if we get a vaccine or several vaccines, about half of all Americans in recent polls say they won't get one. Some, it will be temporary. They just want to see how the beta testers, so to speak, the first people do in terms of things of side effects. Others say they don't even believe the virus exists. How do you operate an airline then when you're going to have a large number of people who still may be shedding virus? Do you still require masks? Do you require doctor's letters? You had a vaccine? Do you take temperatures of everybody boarding a plane? How do you do it? Well, there are some airlines right now that are taking temperature, but that's more theatrical than anything else because people can be asymptomatic and still transmit the disease. The, the real issue here, believe it or not, all fantasies aside, is not the vaccine. It's the widespread availability widespread, I want to emphasize that, of fast response, reliable testing at every touch point in your trip. Once that happens, whether we ever get a vaccine or not, uh, and there are no guarantees that we will, uh, then you're going to start seeing the comfort level come up, the liability issues start to be reduced, and people start to, to travel again, both business and leisure. Airbnb and VRBO have seen rentals collapse. Some people who invested in vacation rentals have given up on it. So will that market come back? Are people going to be happier with a vacation home rental because it avoids being with strangers in elevators? Or are they going to gravitate toward hotel chains where they're going to be possibly more assured of certain cleanliness standards? What do you think is going to happen? If you go back to moments of crisis, like the recession in 2008 or 2009, uh, where, right, right after 9-11, what you see is the growth of multi-generational and family travel. And when you have that happen, 
Then you see the Airbnb sort of get redefined into long-term rentals so that someone's not going to rent it for a night. They're going to rent it for two months and the whole family shows up and that's their self-contained home away from home. Uh, we haven't even dealt with meetings and conventions because that's dead on arrival now, at least until 2022. Don't let anybody kid you. That that business is basically in a coma. Last question. We constantly talk about the airlines and the hotels, things like that. I noticed GNS Foods, a company most people have never, ever heard of. They, they supply United Airlines with the nuts that you get as a treat. Yeah. They're stuck with more than 30,000 pounds of excess food. This is a much larger effect than even the tens of thousands of airline employees being laid off. That's right. You know, the largest service industry in the world is travel and tourism. And you just named a number of those sectors that people forget about. The unemployment factor right now in travel and tourism is about 51%. And one third of those jobs are never going to come back. The story about the GNS folks, they really got hit hard by American first because they were the, the sole supplier or the major supplier of all those nuts in first class and business class. And American just canceled the contract after ordering, as you said, just a few million pounds of nuts. So this small mom and pop company just went online. And believe it or not, if you really miss flying, you can buy those nuts and uh, at a big discount. And by the way, I'm doing it. <laughs> I've read that. I saw that. You get like two pounds of, of these things for like seven bucks right now, just because they need to move this stuff before it completely spoils. Exactly. So there's there's your little bit of bargain good news from Peter Greenberg, who usually has so many other bits of bargain travel news, the CBS News travel editor. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Anytime. And I'll share my notes with you if you want. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has reached 180,000. And as it has since this began, though it has receded in some areas, it is surging in others. And there are fears that people in shelters in the wake of Hurricane Laura will further spread the virus. There are reports the White House is considering emergency authorization for making millions of doses of a vaccine being developed by Oxford University. Now, the vaccine is not proven to work yet, but there are promising signs. And CBS News correspondent Charlie Daggett in London got an exclusive look inside the lab where they're developing the technology to make more doses more quickly than has ever been done before. Scientists tell us nothing on this scale has even been attempted before. Now, this lab is meeting that challenge head on. And remember, this billion dollar bet is on a vaccine that has yet to reach the final phase of testing. If it fails, it all gets scrapped. There is no plan B. Swirling around in these flasks may be the world's greatest hope in bringing an end to the pandemic, the very Oxford vaccine itself. The Paul Corporation lab looks like a cross between an industrial kitchen and an operating room, where bioreactors share space with monkey wrenches. So this is a... The masks and gowns are less about our protection than us contaminating the facility. When its Oxford University vaccine began to show promise earlier this year, drug giant AstraZeneca approached director of strategy Clyde Glover with a challenge. So the initial challenge was to make a process that could be uh, used to make millions of doses in a single batch. Millions. Millions of doses in a single batch, which could then be repeated. The eyes of the world have been fixed on the science behind the Oxford vaccine and whether it works. 
but it wouldn't go anywhere without this, the hardware. Glover told us the process of developing a system to scale up like this usually takes years. They came up with this blueprint within eight weeks. In all of your years, you've never seen anything like this. No, there, there's no question that um, the speed with which we worked on this process is unprecedented. A small starter batch of the vaccine is multiplied in this bioreactor until it produces millions of infected cells. Those cells are then broken down, the vaccine is isolated, and the rest of the system is essentially just a series of filters that remove cell debris and suspect contaminants. This is a classic engineering problem. How do you take your mother's favorite cookie recipe and make it exactly the same way thousands and millions of times. This equipment gets shipped out to manufacturers throughout the world. There is no time to spare and zero margin for error. The Oxford vaccine is one of several leading candidates, including Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech. Russia's vaccine has skipped large-scale phase three testing, offering inoculation to anyone who chooses to have one. Of course, Glover's gunning for the Oxford vaccine, and he's put more than his reputation on the line. He's taken part in the trial himself. CBS News correspondent Charlie Daggett in London. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.